I'm a sinner. Now, that's not a news flash for, for most of you, uh, but I'm a sinner. If I were to stand up here and to reveal every sin that I've ever committed or thought about committing, then some of you would leave, quite honestly. Uh, but God has declared me righteous. He's declared me righteous. I'm not righteous because of my devotional habits or because I'm a pastor or because I went to Auburn University, although that doesn't hurt. Um, just kidding. I'm not righteous because of the food that I eat or the clothes that I wear or because of how well my children behave. I'm not righteous because of my prayers or my fasting or because I'm a good dad or any of those things. I'm not, I'm not righteous because I donate to good causes or <clears throat> exercise regularly or vote for all of the right people. I'm not righteous for any of those reasons. But God has declared me righteous and said that I have right standing with him. Right standing with God is not something that I've earned. It's not something that I deserve. It's not something that I've gained by meeting a religious standard. But right standing with God is a gift that he's given me through faith in Jesus Christ. I received this right standing when I put my faith in Jesus. When I trusted in what he had done at the cross. When I believed that he had lived the life I should have lived and didn't live. And if I really got up every morning and believed that. Looked in the mirror and told myself that's why I'm righteous. If I went into the, the bathroom before I preached every Sunday and said, Justin, you're righteous and accepted by God, not because of whether people stay awake through the sermon or not, but because of what Jesus has done. Wouldn't that really change everything? Wouldn't that really change everything? And if one of you were to come up here and listed a couple of your sins and then say, you know what, I'm not righteous because I'm a great mom or a great doctor or a great whatever. I'm righteous because of what Jesus has done. Wouldn't that change everything? And wouldn't it change everything if each one of us were to functionally every day to lean into that and to realize that our righteousness is not from what we do, but it comes from what Christ has done. Uh, we're going to read this passage together from Mark chapter 2. And then we're going to talk about four things that really believe in the gospel, that really believing that Jesus is in our righteousness, four things that that can change uh, in our lives. So if you look with me, Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and, and this is Jesus and all the crowd was coming to see him, and he was teaching them. And he passed, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was eating, with, saw that he was eating with, tenors, with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, "Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in the old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. The new wine is for fresh wineskins. We pray for us. <clears throat> Father, thank you uh, for the scriptures and for the good news of the gospel. Uh, I pray that you would help me to present it clearly, and I pray that you would work no matter how well I present it, and that you would work in our hearts and our lives and help us to trust in Jesus. We ask in his name, amen. Four things um, I want us to think about, though, believing that my righteousness comes from Jesus and not from things I do. Four things that that changes, I want us to see from this text. It changes how I think about religion. It changes how I think about other people. It changes how I think about food. You weren't expecting that one. And it changes how I think about myself. All right? So let's start with this one. It changes how I think about religion. Uh, this is the first place in the Gospel of Mark that we're introduced to the Pharisees. Uh, and so a little background on them. The Pharisees were extremely pious Jews. Uh, they basically never did anything wrong. They were very serious about the law of God. They were trying to guard themselves from being corrupted by the Greek and the Roman influences around them. Uh, they had looked at the Bible and they had decided that there were actually 618 separate commandments in the Old Testament. And to make sure that they were obeying those commandments in each and every situation, they added more rules on top of the commandments. It's kind of like they were putting a fence around those commandments so that you didn't get anywhere close to breaking any of those laws or commandments. They had rules about how far you could walk on the Sabbath. Uh, there were rules that you couldn't tie knots on the Sabbath unless you were able to untie the knot with one hand. So I guess Boy Scouts would have been okay with them. Uh, they, had this, they had this long list of do's and don'ts that they had to do. Uh, they practiced radical separation from people who weren't Pharisees because they didn't want to be contaminated by their lack of holiness. They wouldn't buy food from non-Pharisees. They wouldn't sit down and eat a meal with non-Pharisees out of fear that perhaps the food hadn't been tithed. Uh, Jesus often criticized them for putting their tradition above the scriptures and for focusing on externals instead of focusing on the heart. They were looking for the Messiah to come, but like a lot of the other Jews, they were expecting the Messiah to come and to to throw off the Roman oppressors and to bring the Jewish nation back to its national glory. And they thought that it was through national purity and religious activities like fasting that they could earn God's blessing, kind of pull the trigger and, and cause God to come and bless the nation and restore them to their glory. And so in our text, they're bent out of shape with Jesus. Now, they're basically mad in both instances because Jesus is eating, both times. Uh, Jesus, in the text, he calls Levi, who's also known as, as Matthew, he calls him 
to follow him. Uh, Levi is a tax collector. He takes Jesus to his home and, and gathers a lot of other tax collectors and sinners to come and to eat with them as well. Now, you need to know that everybody hated tax collectors uh, because the tax collectors were usually Jewish people who collected taxes from their own people and then paid them back to the Roman overlords. And the way that they made money is they had a certain amount they had to turn in and so they would basically charge whatever they could get from you, kind of skim off the top and then give what they were supposed to to the Romans. So, so nobody liked them. Um, in terms of sinners, listen to how some of the Jewish writings that they described who fit in this category of sinners. Uh, they were gamblers, money lenders, people who raced doves for sport. I don't know what that's about. Prince wrote a song about that, though. Um, <laughs> Some of you, I don't care if Pat Mellon will get that. <laughs> when doves cry? Anybody? Okay. Uh, people who trade on the Sabbath were included thieves, the violent, shepherds, tax collectors. They were all lumped into this category of sinners. They were basically people the Pharisees felt like were beneath them and weren't as, as holy and, and put together with them. And so the Pharisees are upset that Jesus is eating with sinners. And the Pharisees are upset that Jesus isn't fasting. Because fasting is a way, hey, we're going to earn God's blessing and get him to come back and bring blessing on our nation. They didn't hang out with sinners. They didn't want to be contaminated by them. And they were, they were fasting as kind of this, this works righteousness to force God to act. What were they doing? The Pharisees were busy establishing their own righteousness. They were busy establishing their own righteousness. They were busy doing things to earn God's favor. But here's how they thought. I get righteousness and I earn God's blessing by living up to the standards of my religion. I get righteousness, I earn God's blessing by living up to the standards of my religion. And Jesus says, I've actually come to blow up your religion and blow up your way of getting righteousness. Uh, he says to them, you can't just sew an unshrunk piece of garment onto an old garment. And the reason for that is because when that pack shrinks, it'll tear up the garment that you've sewn it onto. And then he says, you can't put new wine in the old wineskins because that new wine will burst the old wineskins. Now what's that all about? Uh, in those days, you would put wine into containers made of animal skins in order for the wine to ferment. And when it fermented, it emitted gases and it stretched the container out. And so you needed new wine skins that were still kind of flexible. If you take, took old wine skins that had already been stretched out and began to become brittle, when you filled those up and the gases were emitted and it began to expand, it would crack these old wine skins. So you, you didn't do that. And so, so what's Jesus saying here? Uh, Jesus is saying, I think, on the one hand, that all these Old Testament forms can't handle the newness that he's bringing. In, in other words, you can't just take your Old Testament religious practices and tack what Jesus is doing onto that. Jesus is bringing something radical. He's bringing something new. Something that the Old Testament, yes, pointed to, it, it did point to it, but something that doesn't come to fruition until Jesus actually comes on the scene, and that changes everything. Uh, a couple of things that changes. 
we no longer abide by the Old Testament cleanliness laws. Why don't we do that? Because the one who actually makes us clean has come. Jesus has actually come. And so we no longer, no longer need to do these things that were intended to point to Jesus. We no longer offer sacrifices every week. Why don't we do that? Because these sacrifices come in Jesus Christ and he has been offered. All those are meant to point to him. So we no longer have to do all of those anymore. All right? it, this, is something, this is something new. The Old Testament pointed to it. But it's, it's not the same thing. It doesn't have the same form, the same religious forms. But even more than that, I think he, he's really pushing the Pharisees here. Because what the Pharisees have been doing is misusing the Old Testament law and really missing what it was all about. They had been using it and adding to it and, and trying to use it in a way to establish their own righteousness before God. If we do all these things, God will accept us as righteous. That's what they're trying to do. And Jesus is saying to them, that's not going to work. You just can't take what I'm bringing and tack it on to what you've been doing. I'm new wine. The gospel is new wine. And it's come to blow up everything that you guys have been thinking about religion and what it is. Uh, Romans 10 verse 3, I think is one of the most important verses of the Bible. It, it basically says that the, the people of that day, being ignorant of the righteousness of God that was offered to them in Jesus, were busy trying to establish their own righteousness. And so Jesus didn't make any sense to them. No, no, we, we, can, we can be righteous through what we do. That's what we've always done, right? And Jesus is like, no, you're righteous through faith in me. And they don't see any need for that. Because they already have their own righteousness. Let me ask you this question. That's a lot that I just said. Um, how are you trying to establish your righteousness? What are the ways in which you're trying to establish your righteousness? What are you doing to try to assure yourself and everybody else that you're okay? How do you try to make yourself acceptable to yourself, to God, to other people? Is it the shoes I wear, or the sermons I preach, the weight I lost, the candidate I voted for and those stupid people over there didn't? Or maybe it's through organized religion. Through our religious activities. Um, you know, every religion other than Christianity at the end of the day is a works religion. It's what I do to achieve a right relationship with God. It's what I do to achieve nirvana or whatever it is. Christianity is the opposite of that. But a lot of Christians are still caught up in that. We get caught up in establishing our own righteousness before God. Uh, I read a, a retelling of the, the story of the prodigal son recently, and <clears throat> listen to this is one section of it. The younger brother, he leaves home, and he goes to the far country, and he gets involved in a really big church. Okay, so it's, it's a little bit different, all right, than, than what we're usually used to reading. And then this is what the writer said. Uh, it was a really big church that had splintered off from the bigger one a decade previous. They had rejected the prosperity teaching and claimed to take the Bible more seriously, preaching the benefits of a life of radical obedience and imitation of Christ. Before long, they had him on a regiment of thrice daily Bible studies, scripture memorization, and marathon prayer sessions. Before he knew it, he was spending more time at the church than at his apartment, helping in whatever task he was asked of him. 
Uh, eventually, he, he burns out and he goes back home and he, and he hears the, the gospel of grace. But I think there's a lot of Christians who are doing all that same stuff because we think it's what we're supposed to do and we just haven't burned out on it yet. And so we have all these religious duties that we're caught up in. And we're, we're Bible studies, Bible studies, Bible studies, and I love Bible studies, but they become this way of establishing our own righteousness. And we establish our righteousness by the places we refuse to go and the people we refuse to hang out with and by our own moral superiority and religious busyness. And we say, this is my righteousness. This is my righteousness. What if, what if Jesus really was your righteousness? What if Jesus, not all the stuff that we do, what if Jesus really was your righteousness? What if you drank the new wine of the gospel every day? Wouldn't that change the way you and I think about trying to find righteousness? The way we try to find righteousness in what people think of us. Wouldn't that change the way we think about even our religion? Religion is about what I do to try to get God to accept me and bless me. Religion is about what I do to try to get God to accept me and bless me. And it leads to slavery or burnout or self-righteousness. Christianity is about what God has done in Christ for me. Religion is about what I do to get God to accept me Christianity is about what God has done in Christ for me. And that leads to joyous worship and celebration and obedience. Not because I have to. Not because I'm supposed to. Not because that's what more people do. But because I want to. Because I want to. Uh, imagine if I bought Susan, Susan's my wife, if I bought Susan flowers and I took her out on dates in order to get her to like me and approve of me and to agree to stay with me. And these were things I do to kind of to stay in her favor so that she would bless me. And oh, that would stink, wouldn't it? Yeah, this would be terrible. But what if I did all that knowing that she was utterly committed to me? And I did those things simply because I loved her. And wanted to find ways to show her that love and spend time with her. Wouldn't doing the same things be so much better and so different? Can you see how much better that would be? What if I read the Bible and came to church and worshipped and prayed? Not to get God to approve of me but because I knew he had already accepted me, that he had already given me the righteousness of his son. And I did those things simply because I loved him and wanted to spend time with him and wanted to know him better. You see how much better that would be. And you see how that gospel changes the way I approach religious activity. Getting my righteousness from Jesus changes how I think about religion. Secondly, getting my righteousness from Jesus changes how I think about other people. 
Getting your righteousness from religion is dangerous. Because if you or I think that God accepts me because of what I do, because I measure up, and he doesn't accept those people because they don't measure up, that's fertile soil for self-righteousness and fear and avoidance and mistreatment or even worse. When, when my righteousness comes from my doing, then what I'm going to do, I'm going to divide the world into those who get it done and those who don't get it done. And when we do that, we separate ourselves from those who don't get it done. Those people in their inferior jobs and their inferior income levels and their inferior education and their inferior politics and their inferior religion. Uh, Better Call Saul is one of my new uh, shows that I'm, I'm enjoying these days. It's about a lawyer who goes by the name of Saul Goodman. Uh, his actual name is Jimmy McGill, and Jimmy has always been something of a scam artist. But he's trying really hard to become a legitimate lawyer, and he's got this, this huge case that's his ticket to finally get into the big firm where his, where his brother has always worked, where his brother has huge influence. But his brother has sabotaged the whole thing. And, it, and Jimmy's just starting to figure it out. Uh, his, his brother blew it for him so that he couldn't actually become a partner in this firm. And Jimmy's just figured it out. And what I'm about to read is Jimmy confronting his brother about this. Uh, it's Jimmy and his older brother is Chuck. And so Jimmy says to Chuck, you told him not to hire me. It was always you, right? Right back to when I passed the bar and tried to join the firm, you didn't want me. Speak up. Tell me why. It's the least you can do for me. I'm your brother. We're supposed to look out for each other. Why were you working against me, Chuck? And Chuck says, you're not a real lawyer. I'm what? You're not a real lawyer. University of American Samoa, for goodness sake. An online course. What a joke. I worked my rear end off to get where I am. You take these shortcuts and suddenly you're my peer. You do what I do because you're funny and you can make people laugh. I committed my life to this. You don't slide into it like a cheap pair of slippers and then reap all the rewards. And Jenny says, I, I thought you were proud of me. And Chuck says, I was. When you straightened out and got a job in the mailroom, I was very proud. And Jimmy says, oh, oh, that's it then, right? Keep me down in the mailroom because he's not good enough to be a lawyer. And Chuck says, I know you. I know who you were. I know who you are. People don't change. You're slipping Jimmy. And slipping Jimmy, I can handle just fine. But slipping Jimmy with a law degree is like a chimp with a machine gun. The law is sacred. If you abuse that power, people get hurt. It's not a game. You have to know on some level that I'm right. You know I'm right. Now, if you've ever been on the receiving end of that, you know how that can produce an insecurity within us that leads us to seek to establish our own righteousness, which is why insecurity and self-righteousness so often go hand in hand. But listen to what Chuck says. I know you. 
I know who you were. I know who you are. You can't change that. You can't do what I do. You know I'm right. I'm in the right. The Pharisees were saying, Jesus, you know we're right. We're in the right. We're right to stay away from sinners and all the nastiness in their lives. And Jesus, you should stay away from them too. You know we're right. You know we're righteous. And Jesus, verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not a compliment. He's not saying, look, you guys are fine, you're healthy, I'm here to take care of sick people, don't worry about it. He's saying, the Messiah has come, and the Messiah has come for sinners, and if you're not a sinner, then I don't have anything to offer to you. If if you're confident in your own righteousness, if you're okay, then I've got nothing for you. If if you and I are, are busy establishing our own righteousness, we'll always look down on it. We'll always try to separate ourselves from the people that we think aren't keeping up, aren't doing what they need to do. But if Jesus is my righteousness, if I understand that I'm the sinner, if I understand that I'm the sinner, then I think I'll start to love other sinners the way Jesus did and befriend other sinners the way Jesus did. And maybe other sinners might want to actually spend time with me. Why don't they? You ever ever ask that question? Why don't our lives look more like Jesus' life who had these tax collectors and sinners following him about? Maybe it's because we separated ourselves from the world so much in this misguided attempt to get away from sin and it's misguided because believe me we take our sin wherever we go we take it with us but maybe part of it is and I don't even know if we always realize this but maybe what I'm really communicating to people is I want you to come and join me in my self-righteousness I want you to come be like me and establish your righteousness like I'm establishing my righteousness instead of actually pointing people to Jesus and people are saying no thanks no thanks. Look, if, if, if we really believed the gospel, if we really believed that we're sinners and that Jesus Christ came for sinners, not for the righteous, we'd feel comfortable inviting our gay friends, our friends with messed up marriages, our friends who drink too much, our friends who are, are messed up in whatever way, because we're messed up, we we feel much more comfortable inviting them into our lives, into our homes, and into our churches as well. Because we're messed up too. Uh, Chuck, who was screaming at Jimmy the whole time about how righteous he was, if, if you haven't watched the show, then you need to know, he was living at home and couldn't go outside because he was scared of electromagnetic radiation And everybody had to leave their phone in the mailbox before they went in to see him. And Jimmy was basically feeding and taking care of him. We're all messed up. He's so self-confident and so righteous, but he's messed up. 
But, you know, the, the response to that sometimes is, but, but, but we'll be misunderstood if we're that gracious. We're supposed to be fighting against gay marriage and fighting against sin and fighting against all these other things. People like that are destroying America. Are they? Are they? Or am I? Me and my damnable self-righteousness. What's, what's actually the bigger problem? It, 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 is it me and the fact that I'm constantly trusting in the American, the works righteousness gospel of the American dream instead of trusting in the sacrificial gospel of the cross? Is it them or is it me? Because I'm the one that actually has good news for sinners. Good news for them. But I'm either too busy or too apathetic or too afraid or too self-righteous to actually take it to them. One of my friends was the campus minister at uh, North Carolina State. uh, And he had some students that were straight students who got involved in the gay and lesbian club there at, at NC State. Um, and this is, this is early 90s, so the, the climate was a little different then. Those students in that club knew what the church thought of them, generally speaking. They knew that the church didn't approve of what they were doing. But they didn't know that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And that's what those students were trying to do. They were simply trying to go and to build relationships with and to love sinners and point them to Jesus Christ. Y'all, we, we do exist to call people to repentance. Right, let me be very plain about that. But there's a huge difference between a self-righteous call to get your act together and come be like me and a humble call to repentance that begins with me too. Me too. I struggle with sin too. I disobey Jesus every day. But that's why I need Jesus. Not because I'm better than you. I'm same boat with you. And that's why I need Jesus. When I get my righteousness from Jesus and not from what I do, it changes the way I think about religion and it changes the way I think about other people. Uh, thirdly, it changes the way I think about food. Uh, take the pressure down a little bit. Uh, but but yeah, we, can be so, we can be self-righteous about food, right? Uh, it's kind of funny. I can't believe that they eat fast food and not local homegrown organic food. Uh, or on the other hand, oh, they think they're too good to eat McDonald's. It goes in both directions. But if, if we believe the gospel, food becomes not just one more way of establishing our righteousness, Not simply a thing that we eat to sustain our strength, but it becomes a tool for celebration and for welcoming other people in the community. It was a big deal for Jesus to go and to eat with these people. He was was welcoming them, people who had continually been excluded. By sharing a meal with them, he was welcoming them and inviting them in the community and in the fellowship with him. Uh, Food, shared meals, that, that ought to be something that we do together frequently. And we ought to be figuring out how to invite our neighbors to, to meals as well. And getting to know people who don't know Christ. And invite them into food and the fellowship and community 
with us. That's one of the things I, I hope the, the REACH team will work on, is to help us um, as a church to be a community that uses food well and uses it to welcome people into fellowship and community. You know, when we talk about sharing the gospel, we always are like, man, there's got to be a silver bullet evangelistic program somewhere that if we just do this. And I've read this quote to you before, but I'm going to read it again. Jesus spent his time eating and drinking. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. That's how Jesus did evangelism. And I'm going to keep reading that until we actually believe that. Meals are a way to to welcome people into community. Meals are also this way to celebrate that Jesus has come. Jesus says here, the reason disciples aren't fasting right now is that I'm with them. And he's saying in his veiled way, actually, that, that God is with them. But I don't have time to get into all that right now. He's saying, when I leave... Then they can fast again because they'll be fasting and waiting for my return. And so where does that leave us? We live in kind of this in-between time. Jesus has come. Jesus has ascended to heaven, but he sent his Holy Spirit to us so that he is present with us. So we're in this sort of this already not yet time. And so we do have times of great celebration because we see what Jesus has done. And we have his spirit dwelling within us. And so I think that means Christians ought to have the best parties. We ought to be the ones, not uh, frowning at everybody, we ought to be the ones having the best parties. I still want us to rent Ivy Hall. Maybe we can do it this Christmas, since we're going to be getting close, God willing, to becoming a particular church, to rent Ivy Hall and to spend too much money and to cater too good a meal and to have some great musicians and to sing and to dance and to eat into the night. And celebrate what God is doing. And if the REACH team and the BUILD team can't handle it, then the worship team, then that's on you. <laughs> somebody, I don't care. Somebody, somebody make that happen. Uh, we need to celebrate. But, but, everything is not as it should be. And we are not physically with Jesus like we will be. We don't experience his presence like we will. So we fast as well. We have times of celebration and we have times of fasting. And we cry out that Jesus would more and more make himself known in the world and more and more make himself known in our lives as well. We fast because we see how much we still need Jesus to work in our lives. When I get my righteousness from Jesus, it changes the way I think about food. And then last thing here, when I get my righteousness from Jesus, it changes the way that I think about myself. It changes the way that I think about myself. I'm a sinner, but Jesus came to eat with me. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. But, but Jesus came to eat with people like us. If you're Jimmy and your older brother has just beaten you down and kicked you to the curb and told you how unworthy you are, Jesus has come to eat with you. To sit down and right here beside the curb and to share a meal with you. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a doctor who loves to spend time with sick people. Uh, in his book, This is Awkward, uh, Sammy Rhodes, who's the RUF campus minister at, at uh, USC, 
He said that the new scarlet letter in our culture is A for awkwardness. And he writes, one of our greatest fears is leaving a party only to have friends lock eyes with each other and complain about how awkward we were. And then he goes on to say how awkward moments reveal the gap between the real you and the ideal you. We want everybody to see the ideal me. We're scared for them to see the real me because we're deathly afraid that we won't measure up. And then he writes this. A few years ago, I met with a student who had lived most of his life with a porn addiction. Over coffee, he told me that sex, much less pornography, was simply not something that ever got talked about in church. The sad thing is he grew up in one of those gospel-centered, published author, preachers whose podcast you download kind of churches. His family felt the same way. What he said nearly broke my heart. He said, because no one ever talked about porn, I felt like it must be the worst sin in the world, and so I was so scared and ashamed to tell anyone about it. Sammy writes, what my student was describing was shame. One of the saddest realities of life is the things we need to talk about the most, we tend to talk about the least. Shame is often the culprit. Author and speaker Brene Brown likes to say that shame only needs three things to survive, silence, secrecy, and judgment. If you look behind your awkward moments, you will almost always find shame. And instead of uncovering the sources of our shame to each other, we hide. We have. If you and I really begin to believe that Jesus is our righteousness, we'll be able more and more to open up about the things that bring us shame. If we as a church believe that our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ and not from what we do, we will not be a place of silence and secrecy and judgment. If we as a church believe that our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ and not from the things that we do, people will be able to come, on, come in here and open up about their awkwardness and their porn and their struggles with same-sex attraction and their drinking problems and, and, and whatever it is. We'll be able to, to bring it. Bring it all in here. Don't leave it at the door. Don't hide it. Bring it all in here. Bring it to Jesus and say, I'm a sinner. Me too. But Jesus is my righteousness. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I pray that you might be willing to use us in some way to help us understand the gospel. And understand that our righteousness comes from Jesus and not from what we do, not from how well we worship or anything like that. I pray that would change the way we think about religion and people and food and even ourselves. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.